I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 2, Who Was Shakespeare the Man? In this session, I'm going to answer as best I can the questions about Shakespeare the Man that I have most often been asked. The first question is, who wrote Shakespeare's plays? The answer, Shakespeare did. End of discussion. But just so you know, various people have argued, using mostly irrelevant or spurious evidence, that Shakespeare did not write the works of Shakespeare, that they were written by someone else. By whom? Some say Christopher Marlowe, some Sir Francis Bacon, some Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, some Queen Elizabeth herself. Every important writer of Shakespeare's age has at least one would-be scholar defending his favorite's title to the authorship of Shakespeare's plays. Some even argue the plays were written by several authors working together, an Elizabethan committee. But as a wit once said, if Bacon wrote Shakespeare, who wrote Bacon? I have seen this quip ascribed both to the Shakespeare scholar George Lyman Kittredge and to Albert H. Tolman of the University of Chicago. Its point is that every work of art bears the stamp of the style of its author, and no unprejudiced reader could mistake the best plays and poems we call Shakespeare's for the work of anyone else whose writing we know. The reasons people have raised this authorship question have little to do with evidence. One reason is envy. Some people simply cannot bear it that a writer like Shakespeare should exist. His unique greatness, one of the world's great mysteries of art, is an affront to them because they cannot explain it. Hence, consciously or not, they would love to cut him down to their own size. And they feel that if they can ascribe his work to someone else, they have explained Shakespeare. Another reason is intellectual snobbery. Because there is no evidence that Shakespeare attended the university, some people assume the man Shakespeare must have been a country bumpkin who could not have written works of poetic genius. They ignore one important fact and one important bit of logic. The fact is that capable country bumpkins might have got a remarkably good education in local schools like that which Shakespeare probably attended at Stratford. In a moment I will talk about Shakespeare's schooling. The bit of logic is that if higher education were the key to Shakespeare's greatness, what would account for there being no one else of Shakespeare's caliber among the Elizabethan playwrights who did go to the university? A third reason for the authorship questions even being a question is some people's attraction to conspiracy theories. Many pseudo-scholars produce elaborate and serpentine theories to explain why the hard evidence appears to refute their claims. This, along with the pleasure of perpetrating a hoax, is most evident in the so-called Oxfordians, who want us to believe Shakespeare's plays were written by the Earl of Oxford, despite the fact that the Earl died before Shakespeare's last ten plays were written. In response to these fancies, only two points need to be made. First, all the solid evidence we have indicates that William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon is the author of Shakespeare's works, 
and almost all reputable Shakespeare scholars believe so. If you want to pursue this evidence, start with William Shakespeare, A Compact Documentary Life by Samuel Schoenbaum, and also his Shakespeare's Lives. Second, whoever wrote the works we ascribe to Shakespeare wrote the greatest works in the English language. Even if his name were not Shakespeare, it would make no difference to our appreciation of the works themselves. Actual end of this part of the discussion. Second question, who was Shakespeare? The facts that we know about Shakespeare's life include the following. He was born on or about April 23, 1564, the third child and first son of John Shakespeare, a glover and commodities trader, who was a yeoman, meaning a man of substance under the degree or rank of a gentleman, and Mary Arden. He grew up in the small town of Stratford-upon-Avon and probably went to grammar school there. Again, I'll speak about that school in a moment. He married a woman named Anne Hathaway and had three children, a daughter named Susanna, and twins, a son named Hamnet, who died at age 11, and a daughter named Judith. Whether he ever traveled abroad is unknown. By 1594, at age 30, Shakespeare was living in London, acting in plays, writing plays, and owning shares in the theater company called The Chamberlain's Men, which, with the accession of James I in 1603, became The King's Men. By 1599, he owned shares in The Globe, a public theater, and by 1608, owned shares in The Blackfriars, a private theater. I will be talking about these theaters in the next podcast, Chapter 3. The last evidence we have of his acting in plays was his performance in Ben Jonson's play called Sejanus in 1603. It is likely that the epilogue to The Tempest, written in 1611-12, to implies Shakespeare's farewell to the theater. Shakespeare then retired to Stratford, though he had yet to collaborate on a few more plays, which I will discuss in a future podcast, Chapter 13, and had yet to write his last complete play, Henry VIII, in 1612. It was during the performance of that play, on June 29, 1613, that the Globe Theatre burnt down. Shakespeare died at the age of 52 on April 23, 1616, on or about his own birthday, and was buried either in Stratford Church or in the graveyard outside it. Sometime before 1623, a monument was built, probably by Gerard Janssen, Gerard Johnson, a Southwark stonemason and sculptor, which shows a bust of Shakespeare holding a pen. The inscriptions on the memorial plaque read in Latin capital letters, Eudicio Pilium, Genio Socratem, Arte Maronem, Terra Tegit, Populus Myret, Olympus Habet. Translation, in judgment a Nestor, in genius a Socrates, in art a Virgil, the earth covers him, the people mourn him, Olympus has him. Then in English the inscription reads, Stay, passenger, why goest thou by so fast? Read if thou canst, whom envious death hath placed 
within this monument Shakespeare, with whom quick nature died, whose name doth deck his tomb far more than cost. Sith, it's actually spelled S-I-E-H, but the sculptor meant since or Sith, Sith all that he hath writ leaves living art but page to serve his wit. This inscription, though its syntax is complicated and cryptic, asserts that though the man Shakespeare has died, his art lives on to honor him more than any tomb could do. On April 10, 1693, a Mr. Dowdle, visiting Stratford, wrote in a letter that at Stratford-upon-Avon, quote, I saw the effigies of our English tragedian, Mr. Shakespeare, near the wall where his monument is erected, lieth a plain free stone, underneath which his body is buried with this epitaph, made by himself a little before his death. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. The clerk that showed me this church is about eighty years old. That stone remains in place. Dowdle is probably not correct that Shakespeare wrote that quatrain himself, but the fear of the curse appears to have kept the grave relatively undisturbed ever since. Rumors to the contrary are not substantiated. What kind of person was Shakespeare? The printer Henry Chettle reports that Shakespeare was civil in demeanor, upright in his dealings, and honest. To the playwright Ben Jonson, he was my gentle Shakespeare. Jonson writes, I loved the man and do honor his memory on this side idolatry as much as any. He was indeed honest and of an open and free nature, had an excellent fancy, or as we would say, imagination, brave notions, meaning worthy, excellent, fine, and gentle expressions. The writer John Davies of Hereford calls him good will, generous in mind and mood, a sower of honesty, worthy to be companion to a king. The minor playwright William Barkstead called him so dear loved a neighbor. John Hemming and Henry Condell, the members of Shakespeare's acting company, who gathered and published the first collected edition of his plays in 1623, called him a worthy friend and fellow. As do many others, the translator Leonard Diggs called him affectionately our Shakespeare. Over and over again, people use about Shakespeare the adjective gentle, meaning not only what we mean by gentle, but also of the gentility, gentlemanly, refined, civilized, respectable, admirable, exemplary. And that, apart from what we can gather from the writings, is about all we know of his character. Most of the rest is speculation. Did Shakespeare go to school? So far as we know, Shakespeare did not attend the university, but the universities then existed to train professionals in law, medicine, and divinity not in literature. On the other hand, hundreds of passages in his work suggest that he had in Stratford the standard grammar school education of his day, in which case his literary training 
was extensive. In the characters of Holofernes in Love's Labor's Lost and Sir Hugh Evans in The Merry Wives of Windsor, Shakespeare portrays the kind of pedant who might have been his first teacher. Here is a brief picture of the curriculum offered in the grammar schools of Shakespeare's day, including the one in Stratford-upon-Avon. Petty School Two years, starting about age five, of reading, writing, and possibly counting. Students learned under the assistant teacher, called an usher, from three books. One, a horn book, a leaf of paper or parchment framed in wood and covered for protection with a thin layer of transparent horn. Written on the paper were the alphabet, small letters and capitals, combinations of the vowels with the three consonants B, C, and D to teach syllables, and the Our Father prayer. 2. The ABC with the Catechism, which contained the Hornbook page, the Catechism, Questions and Answers about the Christian Faith, from the Book of Common Prayer, several forms of grace to be said, before and after meals, and the nine numerical figures plus zero, called a cipher. 3. The Primer and Catechism, which contained a calendar, an almanac, seven penitential psalms, and other religious texts. Lower School Three or four years, starting about age seven, of grammar, including Latin declensions and conjugations, writing and speaking. Studies, still under an usher, consisted of the following. One, students learned the principles of grammar by memorizing the whole of William Lilly's short introduction of grammar, whose two parts were devoted to English grammar in English and Latin grammar in Latin. In Act 4, Scene 1 of The Merry Wives of Windsor, the boy William recites verbatim from the Latin section. Two, they learned Latin sentences from a collection of Latin moral maxims and Erasmus's Cato and read Aesop's fables and the plays of Terence and Plautus in Latin. In some schools, they enacted scenes from those Roman playwrights. Three, they read texts of more recent Latin moral poets and increased their vocabularies by memorizing a short dictionary. Four, they translated passages of the Bible into Latin from English. Five, they learned to speak in Latin from the texts of the continental humanist writers like Erasmus. Upper School Three or four years from age 10 or 11 of rhetoric, prose composition, verse composition, Latin poets, moral history, moral philosophy, and Greek. Students learned now from the master the following all but the last in Latin. I hope I don't lose you with this rather substantial list. Rhetoric, Cicero's Ad Herenium, for general rhetorical information, Cicero's Topica, for invention and development of rhetorical methods, Cicero Quintilian and Susan Brodus, for figures of speech, and Erasmus's Copia, for application of figures of speech. Prose composition of letters, formal themes, orations, and declamations. Verse composition. Latin poetry. Ovid, Virgil, Horace, Juvenal, Perseus, and possibly Lucan, Martial, Catullus, and Seneca. Roman history. Sallust, Caesar, possibly Livy. Roman moral philosophy. Cicero's De Officiis. Greek. Grammar and translation of sentences from the Greek New Testament. 
Okay, that's the end of the list. This training included memorizing and being able to use at least 200 figures of speech, the foundation of Shakespeare's poetic art. About Shakespeare's formal education between the ages of 5 and 15 or so, T.W. Baldwin, in his monumental work called Shakespeare's Small Latin and Less Greek, concludes, quote, If William Shakespeare had the grammar school training of his day or its equivalent, he had as good a formal literary training as had any of his contemporaries. How does this compare to the curriculum of the school you attended? What religion was Shakespeare? Shakespeare grew up in a Christian world and absorbed the Christian outlook. Among his very first reading was the Catechism, a series of simple questions and answers used to teach Christian doctrines to children, and like his neighbors, he was required to attend church on certain days of the year. He was likely to have known some secretly practicing Catholics as well as Protestants, but nowhere in his plays is there clear evidence that he concerned himself with sectarian partisanship, except that he avoided running afoul of the censors. It would have been legally, politically, and financially dangerous to take a partisan position, even if he had wanted to do so. But in this matter, his practical self-interest and the direction of his imagination seem to have been in harmony. In any case, he mostly kept to the realms of religious thought, where Catholics and most varieties of Protestants would agree. The religious dogmas we find implied in Shakespeare's writing are the fundamental and universally shared ones among all Christian believers. A good parallel in the last century is C.S. Lewis whose writing studiously avoids the areas of doctrinal conflict between Protestants and Catholics, though he would not have been in political or legal danger in arguing for one or the other set of views. In fact, he was not interested in doing so. Like Shakespeare, he stuck to the shared fundamentals. Both seem to have found that there was plenty to say about those shared ideas without getting into sectarian conflicts. I will discuss Shakespeare's attitude toward Jews when I talk about the play The Merchant of Venice in podcast C of series 2, and I will discuss Shakespeare's attitude toward Muslims and Turks and toward dark-skinned Africans when I talk about Othello in podcast K of series 2. Important elements of Shakespeare's attitude toward religion will be found in chapter 7, that is, series 1, podcasts 14 through 18. How could one person have written all those plays? My answer is this. If you could write one play like Shakespeare's, then given the time, you could write them all. If Shakespeare had written only one of his plays, almost any of them, we would still consider him to be the greatest of playwrights. Considering that he was able to write one such play, and that he spent most of his adult life writing plays, the number is not so surprising. The miracle is not in the quantity, but in the quality of his plays. How long did it take Shakespeare to write a play? We know that one of Shakespeare's earliest plays, 3 Henry VI, was performed in 1592. 1 Henry VI was probably written in 1589-90. to His last play, Henry VIII, was first performed in 1613. That amounts to 39 plays, or 40 if we count the Lost Cardinio and collaborations, 
in about 24 years, an average of a little less than two plays a year. Of course, in some years he wrote more and in others fewer. Ben Johnson says, I remember the players have often mentioned it as an honor to Shakespeare that in his writing, whatsoever he penned, he never blotted out line. He adds that Shakespeare's imagination, ideas, and expression flowed with facility, in Johnson's opinion, too much facility. So the implication is that Shakespeare worked rather quickly. Considering that he was also an actor and a shareholder in the theater company, and that he had a family and property in Stratford, to which he traveled from time to time, we can estimate that it took him perhaps one to four months to write a play. Where did Shakespeare get his ideas? What were his sources? Shakespeare seems to have read everything he could get his hands on, and it appears that he remembered everything he read and could call upon it all, whether for major plot ideas or for the smallest descriptive details. It is difficult to know for sure every work that went into the making of any particular play, but scholars have discovered plenty of evidence both of major and of minor influences. The major sources include the Bible, most probably in the Geneva edition, ancient Greek epics, philosophy, especially Aristotle, and tragedy and later Greek romances, all in later versions, translations, or retellings, Roman tragedies, comedies, historical chronicles, and poems, especially Ovid's Metamorphoses, Shakespeare's most often referred to source, and Plutarch's lives. Medieval works on philosophy, like Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy, probably in Chaucer's translation, and rhetoric. Medieval epics and romances. Renaissance moral works, like Mirror for Magistrates, giving examples of the rise and fall of famous princes. Essays, like those of Montaigne and Erasmus of Rotterdam, and romances, possibly the first part of Cervantes' Don Quixote. English chronicle histories, mainly those of Hall and Hollinshed, poems like Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and Troilus and Cressida and Spenser's Fairy Queen, prose romances like Sidney's Arcadia, essays, and every kind of old play. In the 19th century, it was common to think of Shakespeare as an untutored natural genius. But as I've suggested, though there is no evidence that Shakespeare went to the university of his time, there is plenty of evidence that he had a top-notch education. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.